This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Asia Torah here in the Practical Spirituality course in the old city of Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount. May it be speedily rebuilt. Uh, Peter, yeah, you had a question, something about observance. Yeah, what's the correct definition of observance? Meaning someone who's Torah observant? Yeah. To the point where like, you trust their kashrut or something? I'm asking, what's the practical reason you're asking me this? Like, I need to know he's observant for some reason? Uh, Maybe for marriage or... To determine if, uh, like, if that's important. I mean, he gets to... Without pronouns, please. You said if that's important. I don't know what that is. Oh, oh. Okay, so if you are... If you go by the kind of... Uh, a lot of people that say that love thy neighbor as yourself applies only to observant Jews, Just how would... How would, how would you define observant in that context? Or how might somebody in that... Say it again, the application again. Sorry to make you sad. How, um, how somebody who... To, so, it was, we were discussing in relation to love thy neighbor as yourself, or uh, that commandment. And for those that, go, that apply neighbor to being like those that are... Fellow observant. Yeah, how would they define observance? Or is there an appropriate or inappropriate way to define Whoa. observance? I was not expecting that. Oh that my gosh. Like, I was expecting, like, whether you can cost, like, the guy hands you a burger and you're wondering if the guy <laughs> himself is observant to eat the burger. He's talking about loving your neighbor. Like, do you have to actually love your neighbor if they don't keep the keep Judaism? So, um, so it's, it's really funny you're asking that. There's two seats for two ladies right there, ladies. Um, you can sit with your sister, and you can sit with your new sister. So this is, uh, whatever, it's the, your, your, your obligation to love your neighbor as yourself is not in the case of, an, of a heretic. Someone who's become a heretic, meaning a fully observant person, who's dropped it all and become a heretic, you have no mitzvah to love them. On the quite contrary, you're supposed to hate them for going against the fabric of reality and fabric of creation. And they've, they've gone against all that's good. And they've gone against that. But that's only a heretic. And a heretic's only someone who had Torah knowledge, was observant, kept Judaism, knew what they were doing when they were keeping Judaism, and then they dumped it. That person you're actually supposed to hate. But there, there's almost no one alive like that today. Even the kids that are running around Brooklyn who uh, you know, are no longer observant, even those kids are... Uh, I mean, if you actually tested their Jewish knowledge, it's like you, you just... You, they were culturally Hasidic or yeshivish or something. They knew, they knew nothing. They didn't know their knee from their elbow. And so they, they, even them, you, you got to love. You understand? So there's like good luck finding somebody that you're supposed to hate. You said hate. You mean hate them or their actions? I I don't want to get into that right now. But they but you wouldn't be nice to them. You know, you're not going to let them patronize your store or something like that. Meaning meaning all out like all out hatred. But that because it's so impractical, I don't even want to discuss it. Because and no one no one here has even met anyone like I met someone like this, and he's dead. <laughs> No, he died of old age. Oh, okay. <laughs> you could see him. He would literally drive on Shabbat with his strimal on. 
you drank. Saying good Shabbos out the window and stuff. And he knew like all of Torah. Like everything. He knew it all. But he's dead now. Which can happen. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, but just regarding kashrut and stuff like that. So people say like if you want to trust someone on the laws that you've got to trust someone. So the big three are um, laws of Shabbat, laws of kosher, and sexual purity. If someone keeps those three, they're considered observant, even though they have no idea what they're doing about everything else. Meaning they're doing their best, but they just don't really know what they're doing. So even if they don't really know what they're doing, but they do keep Shabbat to the best of their knowledge, and they keep kosher to the best of their knowledge, and they keep their pants on to the best of their knowledge, they are... Uh, you can trust them when they hand your burger and say it's kosher. Clear? Okay, so that's, that's as far as like practical laws regarding who's called observant. And, uh, but even the, the love your neighbor stuff's going to go on absolutely everyone you're going to ever meet because they're not, uh, there's nobody out there like that. Yeah? Is that only when you're married or is that also just in general? Like- in general. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sexual purity also for single people. They also to be considered observant. They have to be, they have to be, uh, have their acts together sexually. Um, now, um, obviously, you know, there's in this generation, you know, people sometimes when they're alone will do some crazy stuff. But uh, but I don't think anyone's asking those questions too much. So I think people are considered observant even if they. Are involved uh, if they have a solo career going on. So the um, I think they're still considered they're still considered observant, but uh, no one's going to consider them non-observant. But who would you consider your neighbor? What does it mean, neighbor? So so the English is neighbor, but the the Hebrew is not neighbor. It's your beloved. So any, it's even nicer than they do. So anybody so, of kind? What's anybody? that? It's not Gentiles. Gentiles, you're allowed to be as nice as you want, but you don't get a mitzvah. Meaning you actually get one of the, you fulfill one of the 613. The list of the 613 mitzvahs, the positive ones are 248. 248, easy to remember, 2 plus 4 is 4. 248. So there's 248. Those are those are little like points, you know, like Pac-Man. Like you're running away from the. You guys, the, one of the first video games was Pac-Man. You remember Pac-Man? You two remember? I remember. So you're like this little. And you're eating all those dots. So those are the mitzvahs you're eating. And those little lunch bags that were chasing you, those are the negative commandments. So you're you're eating the positive commandments, moving around the screen. And you're running away from those lunch bags, those little goblins that were coming after you. Those are the negative commandments. You want to stay away from them. And the, so to fulfill one of the commandments of love your neighbor as yourself or love your beloved, uh, you know, your, your companion, your compatriot, it's talking about the Jews. So you can do all the loving you want of the nations, of the Gentiles, but uh, you don't get the mitzvah. You don't get the mitzvah. So, like, for example, let's say I have a Jew and a Gentile, and they're both asking me for the same favor. And I've got enough time for one of them. So guess what I'm doing the favor for? I'm going to do the favor for the Jew right there. That's for sure. I'm going to do the favor for the Jew. And um, 
And there are some very needy people. I try to do my best for everybody. And you were gentle. But I, but I will draw once, once like time's up and the bell's ringing. So time lo- time's going to be allotted towards helping people who are, who are members of my tribe. And not from any position. Like I really would like to help the gentle just as much, if not even more, because it could be the Jews a pain in the you know what. But I'll wind up helping the Jew because that's where the mitzvah is. Now you might say, well, maybe I'm one of these mitzvah mongers, like a point man, like just trying to get points. Like I'm, I'm not, I don't care about people. I'm just going for the points. For that you'd have to. Only you can test your heart. Only I can test my heart on why I'm. Why I'm in for this, but I, I can tell you just from my own perspective, and it's usually the case with all people who are, who are not raised observant is we're not here for points. We were taught people were raised not observant were born and raised to live for this life. You can't get rid of that. So the people who were born and raised for the next for the next world. Like there's a lot of kids in the observant community who were raised for the next world. Like they're literally born and raised to think about the next world only, and. So I can see why it's easier for them to do mitzvahs and stuff because they're not living for this world. But someone who was... I mean, I, I'd be swimming in our swimming pool and playing flood with an ant, you know, you know, who's like making his way and I'm like slowly flooding the area. And, you know, just... I was really praying for the ant, you know, to win and stuff. But anyway, but my mother would come and she would step on the ant purposely. And I'd look up from the pool at my mom and she would say, my father taught me that that's what happens when you die. You better live the most. Because this is all you get. This life is all you get. Now, when you're born, when you're raised that way, and, and listen, it's transgenerational. It wasn't I say. It was my father says, meaning you're part of a long tradition of atheism here. And so... You better live to live every day to its fullest. And you know, someone asked me once. Um, uh, there's a spot over there, back there, if you want. Someone asked me once, years ago. They said, you know, you don't really act like a believer because you, you, because I do so much in the day, and I don't leave anything unturned. Like everything I do. Like for example, tomorrow I'm I'm <coughs> going mountain biking with a club of uh, of men. Uh, off-roading and we're meeting at nine o'clock uh, we're meeting at quarter to nine tomorrow morning so anyway so I was making my schedule and I my wife overheard me noticing the surf report said three to five feet and glassy with offshore winds tomorrow morning so I'm like I'm like oh yeah for sure paddling out tomorrow and she's like I thought you're going mountain biking with this crowd and I said well I mean what time is sunrise <laughs> she's like I don't know I think I think six maybe like, Okay, so we're all set. Yeah. So that's good. Need sun to surf. You know, so I'm going to surf, and then I'll mountain bike. And then uh, and then I'm going to go get a hot sauna with a bunch of naked men. You know, I get slammed by eucalyptus leaves on the back and stuff. Uh, that's a great way to go into Shabbos, for sure. And, uh, and uh, not to mention going home and helping. I will go home and help. And... Uh, already heard heard about last week so this week I will go home and help <laughs> I will set up my wife's candles and everything else very nicely maybe even shop a bit but, yeah. 
Good comments, good comments. Are people getting angry? Yeah, I think someone is. Atheism and ants, or is that all there is? I don't know. I don't know how to deal with that comment. Anyway, but thank you for handling my comments. I always feel bad that I'm missing the comments. Anyway, but if there's a serious question, though... Yeah, that's why I asked the the neighbor one. You're talking about the song now. They're wondering what atheists and ants have in common? I don't know. Anyway, but someone did call me out on this once, and I did, I, I had to go inside my heart and say, like, maybe I'm just programmed this way, or maybe I don't believe, seriously, maybe I don't believe there's a next world, because my, my foundational years, the foundations of the, my actual being were that there was no next world, <coughs> and so maybe I don't believe in it, somehow, that I'm trying to get it all done. And the answer is, I do believe in it. And the reason I believe in it is something totally different than why the people believe in things. The reason I believe in it is not just that I trust the rabbis, and I do. I do, I for sure trust the rabbis. You know, my wife, for example, became fully observant just because of the genius of our rabbis. I'm not talking about the living ones. But she's pretty, she was pretty impressed with them too. But she saw the genius of the rabbis. And it all happened because of hot ruggalach. Do you know what hot rugelach is? you know what rugelach is? It's just these chocolate roll-up pastries. So there was a rabbi who brought to the University of Tel Aviv hot rugelach every Thursday. And so my wife discovered the hot rugelach rabbi. And she was going to these classes, and what would he do? He'd bring up all the modern issues that kids are working out that are dealing with. And they would... Um, the kids would discuss what they thought the right answer was, whether it had to do with euthanasia or abortion or, or uh, you know, political issues or all the different things, uh, liberal, conservative, all these things. And the kids would discuss them, and then the rabbi, who was well-prepared, would bring Jewish sources for what Judaism says. And every single time, he blew them away, and they were just blown away. So, so my wife actually became fully observant, still didn't even know there was a God. She didn't know Torah was true, none of it. She didn't know Torah was divine, she didn't know there was a God. She didn't know any, any of that stuff. She just said that if these people knew the answers for the last thousands of years that really do answer today's questions, well, I'm with them. If they keep kosher, I keep kosher. If they keep Shabbat, I keep Shabbat. Like, how am I smarter than these people? I'm not smarter than them. And so she became fully observant just based on that. It was only like a year and a half, two years later, I don't remember how long later, she was here at Asia Torah, actually, at an event on Shavuos, an all-night Torah study. And at dawn, when there were 100,000 people down there praying in silence, she stood on the roof here, and she says, Oh my gosh, there is a God. And she had her God moment. Raise your hand if you ever had a God moment here. Come on, let's see the God moment. Wow, almost, whoa, that's a lot of God moment, people. Normally, I only get like uh, half the room at best had a God moment. I mean, most people, you should realize you're all very lucky. A lot of people never had a God moment. And they're just trudging along, being a good boy or good girl. Hopefully there's a God, but they never themselves had their own God moment. Yesterday, we did a God moment. We actually had a full God moment for the whole group. That was cool. Now, um... Anyway, uh, someone remind me what we're talking about here. 
Um, good luck. <laughs> you win a prize if you could remind us of work. Oh, is living life to its fullest. Oh, how do you know you have a soul and that your soul lives on is that is that your consciousness your consciousness out your consciousness is beyond your brain because they've tried to find you in brain science. They've tried to find you. You realize you have a point of reference. You're, you're sitting in your seat. You're not sitting over here and you're not sitting over there. You have a point of reference of you in your seat right now, right? That's your point of reference. Well, guess what? They've scanned the entire brain. They cannot find the point of reference. It doesn't exist physically. So if your point of reference doesn't exist in your brain, it's nowhere in there. Yet you have a point of reference. Well, it must be that that point of reference is, is beyond space and time because it does not exist physically. They've checked the entire brain. There's nowhere inside your brain where your point of reference. They don't even look anymore. Why can't it be the whole brain? <laughs> it just can't be. It, they're just, if you go into the parts of the brain, it's like, meaning they know that taste is reporting to you. Okay? It, it, taste reports to you. They know that sight reports to you. They know that sadness reports to you. They know that like all this stuff's reporting to you. That they know. They've scanned every part of the brain. They know what it reports to. And they uh, and fear and danger and fight and flight reflexes. They know all this stuff. They, this brain science is pretty old at this point. But they just can't find you. And it's not all of them together because there's nowhere in the brain that's, that gives a point of reference. And interestingly, the part that you use the most that really hijacks you that if you can actually quiet it through either meditation or psychedelics or something, if you can get it to be quiet, or you just brainstain kids because theirs is very quiet. We spoke about it yesterday. It's the part of your brain that handles past to predict future. So you can actually calculate how to cross a room or how to like, you know, drive a car or stuff. It's collecting all the past. Even your my English right now, it's being used right now. That part of you. Because it's, how do you know my English right now? Because I, this is not English. These are vibrational wave patterns crossing the room at high mathematical equations. Now your neurons collect it. And that part of the brain's matching it to all other English you've ever heard so that you can understand all the, all the math. Because I've only spoke mathematics here. And, and then it, it follows me, hopefully. Well, you can quiet that part of the brain completely to the point where you wouldn't even know what I was saying. You can actually totally quiet that part of the brain. And you're ready for this? You're ten times more present. <laughs> when the part of your brain that hijacks you most, that actually, it so hijacks you. There's a spot right here in the front or, or in the back. So it so hijacks you, that part of your brain, that it actually will make you think it's you. It'll actually make you think you're it. But the funny thing is, is that if you actually quiet and they've already checked this on MRIs, they've had full MRI brain scans of people like, like, like um, expert meditators, Zen meditators who know how to quiet that part of the brain. They got that brain quiet. It's no more wave frequencies there. And you're 10 times more present than you understand, like the part that might have been you, which is not you. I mean, anyway, it's just neurons. It's all neurons. But the, you're, and you're certainly not a neuron. You know. If you were a neuron, you'd be having a really bad hair day. You know, they got all these spikes coming out to connect to all the other neurons. So anyway, but that's enough for me to know that my 
that that my point of reference will outlast my life. I think this is where death cults come from because if you think about it, the only thing that's hijacking your pure presence is your brain. Whereas if you were brain dead, so then it would not be hijacked at all. Death cults. Sounds like we got a death cult down, 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 downstairs. Maybe there's a messiah there. Maybe. <laughs> Just smashed my foot. Any other questions? Yeah. Ezra. Yeah, why are the people born adults? Why are the kids? <laughs> and and uh, Adam Marishan was born as an adult. Poor Adam Marishan. Um the reason that we're born kids is to is and there's many reasons some are kind of interesting actually like for one is that apparently you don't forget everything in the spiritual world so quickly so when you're born you just know way too much so it's better you can't talk because <laughs> you just come from the spirit world You've been in the spirit world, could have been hundreds of years, hundreds of earth years, you could have been in the spirit world, and now you're here, and you kind of know a bunch of things about reality, and so it's better you don't say anything, just not to freak everybody out. Um, also, you, it's good if you have a, if you, it's good to have a couple years of your life where there was no fear. You know, if you think about your life, I hate to say this, like, no offense to anybody here, but your life is totally and utterly governed by fear. Your whole life of who you are is, you know what you are? You're all that your fear left over. You're the leftovers of all your fear. Meaning everything your fear has held you back from, and that, whether it's social, fear of rejection or fear of failure, like meaning your own personal performance in the world or, or fear of being controlled by others or uh, fear of, of all the unknowns, which is everything is unknown. Like we know nothing of what's going to be even tomorrow. And, the, and uh, all your fears of getting hurt or, you know, taking uh, risks that could cause pain. Who you are today, like literally all that's left of your identity is just like, it's just, it's just the refuse of a life of fear. And that's why you notice that certain people are, are like, you know, that, that's why you notice certain people are like highly successful in so many different ways. And you're like, well, like what happened with this person? Like how'd they get to have all that success? Like I also have eyes and ears and nose and mouth and heart and brain and I got all that stuff. Like why are they so darn successful? Or why are they so at peace inside? Or why are they so socially comfortable? Or why are they so... We look at these people and the reason is, is because they're less governed by fear. And then once in a while you get to meet someone who has no fear. And they always rise up like nobody's business. Like, for example, I bet you if we had a fear index, I bet you alone Elon Musk, what's his first yeah, name? Musk. I bet you Elon Musk, I bet you if, on the, if we were able to uh, check fear, that we'd see that he'd rate very, very low on the fear scale. 
And that's why he's got his hands in so many different things, because he just doesn't have much fear. And there was a man in Toronto. Uh, he may be still alive, actually. I'm a little embarrassed that I don't know, but I think he's still alive. I'm not even going to say his name, because I'd be really busted forget forgetting whether he died or not. But um, anyway, but this guy was a, is or was a billionaire. I'm not going to say who it is. Um, anyway, but he's like, a, he's a billionaire, and and he just has no fear. He has no fear. And uh, it got, it, it was interesting, his fear got knocked out of him by the Holocaust. He's one of the miraculous survivors. And he saw just like, he saw, <laughs> you should know, the ones who survived by all the, you know, those miracles, it wasn't like one big miracle. It was like weird chains of timing things that like, like were so extremely orchestrated that some of them came out of there just like, God wants me here. Like, that's it. And there's nothing. Like, if that didn't kill me, nothing's gonna. So, so they're just going like, they just are going to live like extremely successfully in their lives because they're not going to let the fear stop them. Yeah. You're saying that people who have less fear are more successful, but wouldn't fear cause you to do better? Does it no, fear, fear always stops us. It's something else that makes us do better. And that is um, uh, negative beliefs about ourselves, which we spoke about a few days ago. We had a, a giant list on this whole board of all our negative beliefs about ourselves. Now, that causes certain fears. But it also causes us to compensate in weird ways that makes us very successful at certain things. But, our, but even if you became successful because you speak negatively about yourself inside, your internal self-talk's negative, which has caused you to be successful, that your success stinks. It needs deodorant. You understand your success, meaning there are certain successful people who are stink bugs because, they, because they're, everything that's propelling them forward is coming from a, a place of inner disgust. You understand? They're being propelled by an inner disgust. Well, that's going to smell. Whereas someone who propels themselves through clean, clean in, internal being, which is generally generated by a connection to one's soul, which is a great power source. And then they go out there and do it. Their, their success is, is beautiful. And everyone seems to love them no matter how successful they get. Because they don't stink so much. Anyway, yeah, fear is generally a stop. It's generally a stop. It's where we stop, but there's other places we go. So we go where we compensate for negative self-talk. We stop as a different reaction to, to other things. Yeah. So how do we dissolve these attachments that we have and not be so fearful to the whatever we're afraid of? That's a practical question. How do we stop ourselves from all the fear, from, from our fear stuff? So I'll, I'll give you a couple hints, everybody. You guys interested in how to stop yourself from your being stopped by fear? How to, how to you can always just stop twice here. How to uh, get over being stopped by your fears? Yeah. Okay, I'll give you a couple of hints. Um, this will just be a, a litany of hints. Okay? Number one is use the acronym fear is false evidence appearing real. Okay, and that's fun. False evidence appearing real. Because you see other people seem to be doing it, so what's your problem? So it's false evidence. I mean, it may be real evidence, but people do it and succeed. So, so it's basically false, even though it may look real. 
Okay, so false evidence appearing real. Uh, another thing is that. Um, another thing is that fear is fear is um, is often juxtaposed to a. Um, I don't know why I'm making a Venn diagram, but I might erase the Venn diagram part. But uh, <laughs> you got fear is is off is juxtaposed to um, the opposite you're asking about fear? Yeah, I don't know. Love. <laughs> love. I, I lost what I was writing. No, not love. No, it is the opposite. It is the polar opposite. Fear and love? Yeah, 100%. You don't love someone anymore you're fearing them? It's different. It's respect at that point. Fear is the polar opposite of love. Okay. Uh-huh. Fear, he's right that fear and love are, are he's saying good. Meaning, meaning you have a fear of God. And that's like, I'm going to be really careful not to do anything wrong because I'm afraid what might happen. And then you have love of God where I love God so much I want to do all this stuff and avoid all this stuff because I want to do and avoid based on my love of God. So they're really quite opposite motivations. Now, are you supposed to have both of them? One of them? Which one? Both. Yeah, you're supposed to have full fear and full love. You're supposed to have both. You're supposed to be... In love with God to do what he wants and avoid what he doesn't want. And you're supposed to be afraid of God to do what he wants and not do. You should know every relationship you've ever had is, is motivated by love and fear. Except for boyfriend-girl. <coughs> the only relationship that doesn't have love and fear is boyfriend-girlfriend. Okay? Why? Because you, you, you can't have the real love because there's, there's not a safety of fear. Fear, fear is the, the fear of a divorce is such a mess that that uh, that I can now really feel safe enough to love with really an open heart. So I have to have that downside of I have to have the downside of divorce to really love. And whereas a, breaking up boyfriend and girlfriends like it's just too clean, too easy. You know, it hurts, but you can do it and you'll move on. And the uh, and the other is that. Um, that in boyfriend-girlfriend relationships, there's, there, there's, um, there's very little you expose of what it really takes to hold your heart because you don't, you don't want to get dumped. And so people will actually do this. They'll, they'll pretend to be held. They'll pretend their heart's being held, but they really haven't exposed themselves yet. They expose themselves to the other because if they knew what it took to hold their heart, that person would run for their life. And so they'll, they'll just let someone pretend to hold them. But what happens is the girl, she like forgets herself and starts slowly, time release, letting him know what it takes over like a year or two. But uh, that's a mistake because he's going to get scared and run. And, uh, but you hear couples, they get married and then, you know, they live together and then they get married and get divorced. It's because they, once she finally felt safe enough to let him know what it takes... You know, he's just like, who, who, what, huh? what happened? And then he's, he's running for his life. So that's why it's just, it's never, never being in a relationship that doesn't have fear and love involved. Um, but how do we, so let's get to your question. Can I have a little more of that coffee, please? Just a, just a little sip. Tiny bit, like really tiny. That's it. It's just instead of water, because I haven't seen water in this room. 
No, you've been lipping it? No. <laughs> I have a cup. I'll get rid of this cup. Not that I don't trust your lips. I mean, no, no, no. He's sharing with me, so I don't go for that. You wouldn't take a bottle from your own son? Nope. No, I just, no, it's not that. I just think it's not. <laughs> not what? Hygienic. <laughs> Sharon is Karen, man. Sharon is Karen. You ever, you ever ask him what he feels about it? About, about the fact that you won't drink from a bottle you're drinking? No, I, I don't think we ever discussed it, has it? No. <laughs> you guys want to discuss it now? It's <laughs> just it, it's over. <laughs> as far as she's concerned, that was the discussion. <laughs> so. Okay, great. You guys don't have to drink each other's germs. I mean, I don't care. <laughs> I personally don't believe in germs. I don't believe in germs and I, I find that, that the immune system is uh, if well cared for it's not going to there's, there's nothing your, your, a proper floor in your stomach can't kill in the, uh, so there are certain people I think should believe in germs but uh, there are certain people there are people that should believe in germs for sure there are things that people should believe in. I mean, there are certain germs people should believe. There are certain people that should believe in germs. But as long as you're taking care of your health, you don't have to worry much about it. You mean they might have some super germ? Ebola. Well, I, I've been knocked out. You know, but I, I, it's worth it. The few times I've been knocked out were worth it for all the hundreds of times I got to share with somebody. I can think of other things. Okay. Um, So we're talking about um, how to get over fear. So so I can only really, I'm really going to go the the deep way. Um, Oh, now I'll go one more shallow way, is exposure therapy. It's just fail hard a bunch, like get rejected a bunch. Um, It's pretty helpful to just fail a bunch of times. And uh, also to get rejected a bunch of times. Um, maybe even to do something publicly uh, crazy. Uh, please don't do that immediately after this video. What crazy? Like jump off a building? Give us some I do something crazy every month or two, I suppose. You know, you throw a shoe at somebody? I would never, I would never harm anybody. But I, I, it would be a whatever I would choose. It'd be a win-win, you know. Like one time, I walked up to a bunch of tough army. I again, I do this as an exercise. Why does it help you if you push out? Let's say the fear of rejection. Let's say you do something really wacky, wacky publicly, and so now you've just pushed the edge of what's possible in your life to do. Like you just pushed it out, like to the back fence of the baseball stadium. Well, anything else you probably want to do with your life is going to be within the realm of norm, of like somewhat normal. So it's good to do something wacky once in a while to just like push out the fence a bit, so you can now have room to uh, communicate yourself in the world, like because you're likely to never your own your own real like your own real natural. Expression in the world is definitely going to be within the realm of having just done something crazy. I mean, that's going to be way out there. So I do that once in a while. You want some examples? Uh, 
one of the ones I, I did, I, I found a group of soldiers, like really tough looking 18 year old soldiers. And uh, I went up to like the scariest looking one of them all, a real skinhead. I think he was probably Russian. And I went up to him and I put my hand on his arm and I said, always, everyone was talking to this one guy. So I just walked up to the, that one guy and I put my hand on his arm and I said, do you love me? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, take your hand off. <laughs> I'm translating all this to English from Hebrew here. So I took my hand off and gave him back his private space and I said, do you love me? And he looks at me and he's like, I don't even know you. <laughs> and I'm like, do you have to know somebody to love them? And he was like, <laughs> just looked at me bewildered. You know, like, like, why am I going through all this? And, and, then, I, and then I grabbed his M16. It's strapped on him. It's not like I can go very far with it. And I grabbed his M16 and I held it up right between our faces, you know, between the two of us. And I said, I, I think you better figure out if you can love someone you don't know before you use one of these things. I love you. <laughs> and I put it down. Yeah, poor guy. So that might have been a win. That might have been a bit of a win lose, but yeah, maybe that was a win lose. But it was. Uh, it was a good uh, lesson for him, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, but I do these kind of crazy stunts once in a while. I, by the way, I taught a group to go do a crazy stunt, and this guy went, barred an M16 of a soldier, and went into a fountain in Rabin Square in Tel Aviv, and started playing, he had a speaker playing Jimi Hendrix, like, guitar solos, and he was playing on the M16 as guitar solo. With a soldier standing on the edge of this fountain, just going like, this guy's lost his mind, but here's the problem, is the police came. <laughs> and, you know, obviously the police are going to show up to this situation, and it was like, it was pretty messy. It took him about 45 minutes to get released from that situation. 45 minutes isn't that bad. It's not that bad. Yeah, you did worse getting into Israel, huh, George? Three hours, two hours. Okay, so anyway, that's another, but just to go a little deeper, and then uh, we'll call it a day. This is by far my worst class in months, by the way. <laughs> I haven't taught a class this bad in like, <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, uh, just something's off. So whoever got to watch this, enjoyed, I hope you enjoyed it before I delete it. Why you deleted it? For sure. What? No, it can't. This is like this is a way out of the box class. Really? Why? you can't delete everything that doesn't go exactly right. Why not? Delete it. I delete it. No, for sure delete it. Raise your hand if this is a big delete. This class. Never delete. Is that the claw? Never delete. You drop in nukes every day. You gotta get rid of the small things. Yeah, but this yeah. is a hidden. Said one, said one person. Save it for a special like so first class. I can't save these things. No, this no, is no, Facebook, no. man. Save it for later, like delete it off Facebook. Save it for special. Maybe it's like a special case. How do you hide that? Ask the people on Facebook. Make the video. What? Ask the people on Facebook. Yeah, what do you guys say watching this? Delete or not delete? That is the question. Okay. So you guys. <laughs> okay. Listen. No. On a serious note, I'd like to talk a little bit about how to how to get, how to disappear fear. Okay, we're going to talk a bit about how to disappear fear for a moment. 
And the way you disappear fear is, and it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but it goes like this. I'd like to give it to you as a, I'd like to give it to you as an analogy. Life is like a maze. Yeah, it's a maze, and it's and it's full of danger. Life is a maze full of danger. Danger for your own, you know. I mentioned the fears, rejection. There's rejections waiting everywhere. I mean, why do you think you feel the way you do when you walk into a wedding reception? Like, there's so much danger there. <laughs> okay, there's danger everywhere. Rejection danger, failure danger. And we could fail bad. I mean, you see people on the streets who fail bad. You got uh, control danger, people controlling you. Government, police, rabbis, God, spouses, parents, like, control. And then you got unknown danger lots of danger there like there's just danger everywhere and we got to make our way through the maze of life and what happens is you hit walls you hit walls because if you're going to run the maze you're going to hit walls for sure it's a big maze it's not a little kind not a kid's kind on the paper this is a big maze 3d real time real high stakes and you're going to be making your way through that maze i promise anyone here who's going to play even a little big in their life you're going to hit a lot of walls. You're definitely hitting walls. And, and here's the difference between us and rats, because rats in laboratories also run mazes. See, when a rat hits a wall, you know, it's a little stunned for a second. You can see it's like just kind of moving its nose back and forth, like what to do. And then, but it makes a U-turn. And it usually will not come back that way. It's usually not going back there. They, they, they're better than people on this. Like they, they'll make, they have somewhat of enough memory to make that mistake once. How many of, how many of us have gone down some wall, some halls and hit the walls and said, Oh my gosh, I've done this before. Like I've been there. Yeah. I've been there before. And uh, you know who you are. If you have like repeated wall hits, you know, you just, you thought you were over that one. And then later, you know, a year later, a month later, a week later, you're right back there again. And by the way, if I'm giving you advice in your life, for those who I advise in this room, I know who you are. <laughs> and if you keep coming back with similar problems. And I know people like that who are married 20 years, who I've been advising for 20 years. And they are still hitting those walls. So, anyway. But here's, this, here's the catch is that there are people, and you may be one of them, and there's lots of them, that hit the wall and create a new world view based on this wall they've hit that explains away why there's a wall there, and they set up a tent and live there for the next 50 years. So the rat not only outdoes us that it generally won't go back towards a dead end, but the rat's even much better than us because he for sure gets out of there. Even if he does go back, he's going to get out. But human beings are in danger of hitting that wall and then create, I'm going to say it again, listen very carefully to my words, creating a worldview that explains the wall. I mean, how many of us know, I mean, there's, there's people involved in world religions that have camped next to a dead end and have completely, totally made their worldview somehow make sense around that dead end there. And there are people in marriages like that and there are people in, in uh, businesses like that and there are people in financial situations like that. Human beings are philosophical beings. We are philosophical. 
And it's our, it's a, and that can be your, your greatest thing to get to truth, but it can be your enemy because you could create a life philosophy around so, something that doesn't work and you'll just somehow have a story to back up your insanity. And, everyone's, and everyone who's close to you has to somehow buy into your story. And, and nobody got time for that. But apparently everyone does have time for that. But ain't nobody got time for that with a friend. I mean, do you believe that you have relationships that part of proving your love for them is you got to somehow accept a story that they've built that is so clearly a fabrication of just explaining away some total failure? whether it be socially or, or economically or, or in, a ta- uh, uh, in their endeavors of uh, you know, their own ability to be independent. And you, it's amazing that sometimes that's called love. But it, by the way, it is called love. I do it too. I'm, I'm totally cool with this spot here if you want. I'm totally cool with it. Like, I, I promise you, I'm not going to be calling the guy, but if he does call me, I will listen and rehear the story of him stuck somewhere. But here's the scary part, and this is what I meant by going deep, is that in the story I told you, in the analogy of the maze, at least it sounded like this, the, the wall you hit was outside of you. But yet you see someone else saw that wall and just, they already saw the wall and they went somewhere else. So, it's your wall. The wall you're hitting is part of... See, the walls are internal. And what happens is external walls show up for us in, based on scenarios that happened when we were probably really little and we don't even remember half the stuff that happened. And so this wall just seems so darn familiar. And so we snuggle up to our walls based on their familiarity, even though we don't, we'd never want that ultimately. It's not what we want. But we will, we will snuggle up to walls in the maze, create whole philosophies around them because they somehow work for some story we've been telling ourselves ever since we were little. And then there's people who are into the fact that none of this exists, that all there is is God. Hmm. Ooh, meaning this, we're all inside the mind of God? Like this is all God? Meaning when we said Hashem, surrounding space and time, Hu HaElokim, plural, filling space and time, when we said that seven times on Yom Kippur, we meant it. That there is no wall. And that whole story from my childhood, it's a nice story, maybe it'd be a, be a good Hollywood seller, but I don't want to be starring that role. I don't want to be starring in the film I'm in. Yeah, of course, stuff happened, but like, I'm living in God's world. God's recreating the world every day. It's I'm the one who's tied his hands behind his back to cause this rerun of situation after situation because I can't stop snuggling up to what doesn't work for me. I just love the my blocks. I, I, I know them like a warm, dirty diaper in the winter. I'm just addicted to where I'm stuck. It's given me identity and purpose. 
But how many people do we know believe in God but still play that game? And they'll even say every day in Shachris, that God renews perpetually the creation from scratch into existence every single moment. They'll say that, but they'll still snuggle up to that wall that somehow perfectly matches some stupid story from their childhood that, that nobody's got time for. But when you surrender totally to Hashem, and when I say totally, I'm not talking about keeping kosher, keeping Shabbat. That's only the beginning of it. Meaning the fact that you make blessings on your food now, and and you're careful with eating kosher food, and you don't speak Lashon Hara, and you keep Shabbat, and and you pray three times a day. That's just the beginning. That's not surrender. That's surrendering maybe what you do with your lips. That's maybe surrendering what you're doing with your diet. That may be surrendering with your activities once a week when it comes to Shabbat. But I'm talking about when you surrender deeply your whole life story and all of its patterns and all of the bumps and bruises and scrapes that you went through as a kid that somehow perfectly match up to the maze you're trying to get through to the point where you've snuggled up against a whole philosophy of why things just are stuck the way they're stuck. So you can just like dwell in your own little misery there, in your story. That, you know, you, no wonder you have to pay 200 bucks an hour to have someone listen to it. You know, if your story is so interesting, why do you have to go once a week to tell it at 200 bucks? Not that therapy isn't very important for certain people. In fact, I could suggest it for several people in this room. Just <laughs> Not that therapy isn't important for certain people. It's important, but some people are just paid to listen to your stupid story that, that nobody's got time for. But when you surrender deeply to a Kodesh Baruch Hu, to God, and, you, and you, let, you, you just release your story, and then you go put on your running shoes... And you head out into the maze again. There's no way you're staying around those walls. There's no way you're going to let your fears stop you there. They're not real. They're just matchups to things that happened to you when you were a kid. And that's why someone like Elon Musk, I don't know what his childhood was like, but it was probably pretty good. Because he doesn't see the same walls you do. He just doesn't get that as a wall. It's you that sees your walls as walls when you bang into that wall and so if he hit that wall he wouldn't turn it into a life philosophy of why he's stuck he wouldn't create that worldview. he would just say this doesn't work and he moves on and that's why his life works ask me privately so the answer really is a very deep answer, and that comes with total surrender, but a deep, deep surrender. It's not the surrender of your actions. It's a surrender of your actual story of your life. Like, can you surrender your story of your life to have already happened and it's over and to move on triumphantly, courageously, powerfully into a unknown future being created and orchestrated by the creator of the universe and just move out of 
you know, let yourself get that diaper changed and just move on <coughs> and live inspired powerfully and 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 his kashrus with Hashem with total connection with Hashem because think about it can you actually have full connection with Hashem if your whole world is just lens layered lenses of your story meaning you're not living in God's world you're living in your world you're living in your own story you're totally caught up in this scenario of in, in a whole narrative that only you could really understand but you probably don't know half of it because who's ever really plumbed the depths of their story you don't even remember half the stuff that happened. You just know that you're stuck in this narrative and it just keeps showing up that way because you magnetically draw it to you. We draw our stuff. We're like, you know what, we're like, we're like, you ever seen dogs wearing that satellite dish so they don't, you know, like chew on their foot or something? You know? So, but imagine you're wearing one of those things but it's a satellite dish. Well, you're like, you're like, you don't, but you don't see it. You're looking here. You don't see a giant satellite dish around your head. And you're constantly drawing the same situations back, rerun after rerun after rerun, because you're snuggled up against a, a, a blocked, a block in the maze of life that you've turned into a worldview and a philosophy. And you, and you complain about why people treat you the way they do. But meanwhile, if you could just pop that, disc off your head and turn it around and look at it, you'd see it's covered in certain adjectives about you that draws that kind of interaction. So obviously it's going to draw that stuff. But when you surrender yourself totally to a, to a shim on that deeper level, you can flip that disc around like a frisbee and just... And then live in God's world in a relationship with God. Sounds scary, but I'll tell you the alternative's the scary one. I promise you. Setting up a tent in front of a brick wall with the whole universe on the other side of that wall is that's scary. Surrendering yourself internally, surrendering your whole narrative as just nothing more than what has happened till now. Because it is true, it did happen, and it's over. You know, God's creating the world now. And just surrendering that story and walking into an empty future of possibility. That's, that's you know, okay, it's, it's, I, if, I don't think it's scary, I think it's exciting. <coughs> I think it's inspiring. I think it's, uh, can't wait to see what's happening next. Makes me excited. I'm curious, what's God going to do next? And anything's possible now. There's no fear there. Shalom, everybody. Uh, oh, uh, good Shabbos. We have third meal at our house. Hanatsiva Levens. Yeah, there's Hanatsiva Levin. Um, third meal. And um, everyone's welcome. I'm going to wash around 440, something like that. And... Uh, uh, what else can I tell you? Announcements. Uh, what are we teaching today, Rabbi? You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.